Happy Mother's Day to your moms out there. Today I'm going to be taking a break from the book of Revelation. When I first scripted out what days I would be preaching what, it kind of fell that on this day I'd be preaching about the beasts and the mark of the beasts. And I thought, well, <clears throat> I'll take a break, right? We'll get back to it next week. But moms, we want to honor you. And uh, there's expectations that surround this day. Expectations of family gathering and the kids being together. Expectations that maybe this is the day I don't have to do the dishes. But with expectations, expectations can also make this a difficult day. Maybe today, mom's place at the table is empty because she passed away this year, and you're, you're feeling that. Maybe today you're like, I hate it when they say Happy Mother's Day, when I'm not a mother and wanted to be. Maybe there's a difficult relationship between you and one of your kids, and they won't even send you a greeting. So yes, there's expectations for this day. But this day can also be difficult. Maybe you're beating yourself up for some of your failings. Maybe you're feeling regret for the mistakes of the past. You know, moms are not everything they want to be. And they're not necessarily everything we want them to be. They're not portrayed like that in life, and they're not portrayed like that in Scripture. As an example, we have the genealogy of Jesus where five women are mentioned. And so I'm going to read that passage to you. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 and then verses 12 through 16, and we'll catch the names of the women there, and then we'll go on and tell you their stories. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Ezron. Ezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And now to verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Abud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. 
Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. So we're going to hear about these women who are in the genealogy of Jesus, and all of them are presented as flawed in some way, except for Mary, the mother of Jesus. I heard a story that a woman who was caught in adultery was brought before Jesus, and the Pharisee says, the law says this woman ought to be stoned. And Jesus says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Then the Pharisees start to leave one by one. And finally, all that's standing there is a middle-aged lady who takes a pebble and lobs it at the woman. And Jesus says, Mom! Some of you are laughing. All the Catholics laughed at that joke. Now, Mary's not sinless. She calls Jesus her Savior, but she's presented pretty much as flawless. But these uh, other women, well, they're all flawed in, in some way. In fact, um, these mothers mentioned in Jesus' genealogy are not women you would envy. These women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. They, they struggle with things like hopelessness and guilt and painful pasts. But despite their struggles, they found the grace of God, and they ended up being good moms who were crowned with honor. So let me tell you their, their stories. The first story is about Tamar, and her story begins with Judah, one of the sons of Israel. Judah is one of the tribes of Israel. Judah arranges a marriage for his oldest son, and he arranges a marriage with Tamar. And the scripture says of Tamar's husband that he is wicked. He's wicked, and so the Lord takes his life. And poor Tamar. Married to a wicked man. Wicked men are usually wicked husbands. So maybe she was abused, or maybe she just shook her head watching him play out his wicked deeds. After he dies, the, the custom is for the second brother to marry the woman so that she produces an offspring, and that offspring inherits the inheritance of the firstborn son. But this second son is willing to sleep with Tamar, but he will not impregnate her, it says, because he's selfish and doesn't want to share that inheritance that he wants to be his. He too dies. The custom would be that a third son would marry Tamar, but Judah by this time is thinking, that woman has bad luck, and there's no way I'm going to give my son to her. And so she is cast off by Judah's family, labeled 
as bad luck. The sons are the wicked ones. She gets the label. Judah's wife dies, and a year later he's going to make a a journey, and he's going to pass through the town where Tamar lives. Tamar hears that her father-in-law is going to be passing through town, and so she puts a a veil over herself, a total garb that covers her body, and she sits in the town square where prostitutes often sit. Judah happens by, sees her, thinks she's a prostitute, and he propositions her. Tamar says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a a young goat. And she says, well, how do I know I'm going to get that goat? And he says, here's my staff, here's my seal, something he wore around his neck. It's a unique seal so that everyone know that it belonged to him. And she agrees. She agrees on the transaction, and and Judah sleeps with her and afterwards continues on his way. And when he comes back through town, he has a goat with him, wants his seal and his staff back, but she's nowhere to be found. And he doesn't want to be found out, so he heads home. Tamar became pregnant from that encounter. Three months later, people know she's with child in the rumor mill, gets to where Judah lives, and Judah says, that woman needs to be stoned for breaking the law. And Tamar says, well, the father of the baby owns this staff and this seal. And Judah realizes that baby is his. And he says, I am more sinful than she because I held back my son from her. Now, we're not going to say that what Judah did was right. He's, he's violating God's law. He's, he's doing what the Canaanites do, but he owns his sin. Tamar gives birth to twins. One of the twins is Perez, who is an ancestor of Jesus. So the son of God, the sinless son of God, look how that line starts. It starts with an abused and discarded mother who probably resorted to trickery. And it begins with the sin of the patriarch. And yet God works in this line and brings forth from it Jesus. And Jesus' earthly father, because Matthew's genealogy is a genealogy of Joseph. And it says of Joseph that he was a righteous man. Sin does not have to ruin your future. It doesn't have to destroy your family. Sin can be confessed. Sin can be repented of. The grace of God can work to redeem a family. Tamar's family, God kept it. 
preserved it and brought forth to the world the blessing of all the world. God redeemed. There's a second woman in this story, and her name is Rahab. Rahab lives in a house that's built into the walls of Jericho, 12-foot-thick walls, her houses inside the walls. And her house is a house of ill repute. Rahab, um, that name means stormy or raging. Canaanites would often name their kids after their disposition emerged. They called her stormy or raging, right? So here you have a woman with a temper, a woman who runs an establishment of ill repute, a woman who sells herself, a woman dreading the day when she will be discarded for her because of her fading beauty. And one day, two Israelite spies ask for lodging at her establishment. And she hides them. The king sends word, send out those men who are visiting you. And uh, Rahab says, well, they're not here. She's hiding them. And then the the next morning, she uh, sends them on their way in the opposite direction that the Men are looking for them. And the reason why she hides them and protects them is revealed in her words to the spies. She says, I know Yahweh's given this land to you. We heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh, your God, is God of heaven above and on the earth below. This woman with a checkered past has great faith in God. She's betting everything on God. So when the city walls come crumbling down, every part of the wall comes down except where Rahab lives. She's spared. She lives among the Israelites as one of her own. And later, Rahab marries a man named Salmon. And they have a son named Boaz. And we read of Boaz in the book of Ruth. He's a man of God, a man of wealth a man of compassion, a man of integrity. Rahab, the woman with the checkered past, ends up being a good mom. Because if you can judge a mom by how her son turns out, wow, she raised Boaz. Centuries later, Rahab is remembered in the book of James and in the book of Hebrews as a woman of great faith. God's grace 
is greater than our past. It's greater than our sin. It's greater than our mistakes. We see in the life of Rahab, a God of grace who entered her life, a woman with little dignity, and we see her raised to eternal dignity mentioned in the scriptures which are forever. He took this woman who had no prospect of a happy life and gave her the grace to raise a godly son. God can redeem our past. He can forgive our sin and restore our futures. The next woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is Ruth. Ruth was a woman from the nation of Moab, that's in modern-day Jordan. She married an Israelite man who had left Israel along with his brother and his father and mother because there was a famine in Israel. They had settled in Moab, and there they, the two brothers, had married Moabite women. But 10 years later, the husband, the brother, the father-in-law are all dead, and there's just Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi hears that the, there's no longer a famine in Israel, and so she uh, intends to return to Israel, and Ruth wants to go with her. And Naomi says, no, no, just stay here among your own people. Find a husband and stay here. But Ruth insists on going with Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may Yahweh deal ever so severely with me, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth is a believer in Yahweh. Perhaps the reason why she wants to go with Naomi is because she doesn't want to live among these people who believe in false gods. She wants to live with the people who believe in the God of Israel. And so Ruth and Naomi travel back to Israel. But they're both widows. In those days, you know, women don't have jobs unless you have a job like Rahab. They have to find some way to provide for themselves. Now imagine Ruth. She speaks Akkadian. The Israelites speak Hebrew. Different language. If she comes across the border, she probably speaks Hebrew with an accent. She's viewed as an outcast by the Israelites because they despise the Moabites. And then on top of that, she's poor and destitute, and she becomes part of the Israelite welfare system. Here's how it worked. During the harvest, uh, harvesters and workers would go through the orchards and pick the fruit, or they'd go through the grain fields and harvest the grain, and the people who were poor could travel behind them, picking up the grain or the fruit that were left over. And this is how the poor provided for themselves. All right, so now picture Ruth. 
She's feeling responsible for her mother-in-law. She's an outcast. She's looked down upon. She's poor. But one day, by the grace of God, she catches the eye of Boaz, who's the owner of the field she's gleaning in. And Boaz wants her as a wife, and she wants him as a husband. You'll remember Boaz. He's the son of Rahab. And trusting that the son of an outcast and a foreigner would have compassion on one who was an outcast and a foreigner. And Boaz, he's a landowner. He's wealthy. He's well-known in the city of Bethlehem. That's where they live. He's a man of grace and kindness. Well, they get married, and they have a son. And that son, his name is... I'm drawing a blank on his name. Obed, yes, Obed. There are so many names in that genealogy. Obed. He becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of David, king of Israel. God's grace is greater than our ethnicity, greater than our origins or our humble beginnings, greater than our past rejection, greater than our poverty. What seemed like a hopeless life for Ruth resulted in blessing. An alien on welfare becomes the grandmother of the king, whose reign and rule becomes the measure of every king thereafter. God heals our rejection, and he provides for those who trust in him. Well, there's a fourth woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. In that genealogy, she is called Uriah's wife. But we know her name is Bathsheba. Bathsheba, she's bathing on her roof one night, and David is on his palace roof, looking out over his city when he sees this woman bathing on her roof. And David sends messengers to bring Bathsheba to him. And she's willing. He sleeps with her. She goes home. Sometime later, Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant. Her husband Uriah is one of David's soldiers. He's been off fighting David's wars. And so David sends for Uriah, brings him back to Jerusalem, says to Uriah, go home to your wife, hoping that if Uriah was with his wife, they'll think the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah feels duty-bound and says, how can I enjoy the comforts of my wife and home when my fellow soldiers are out in the field? No, I will not go. And so David sends him back to the army 
to the front lines and says, make sure he's on the front lines and make sure he dies. He dies. And then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. Bathsheba's baby dies. And she carries the guilt of feeling responsible for the baby's death. She suffers regret over her past mistakes. And there's strain now and tension, distance in her relationship with David. She might even think, why would God love me? Maybe he's rejected me. Maybe he'll be apart from me forever. Her life seems hopeless. And she's wondering, how will I ever recover from my mistakes? But God's grace brings her another baby. She names him Solomon. God sends word through Nathan the prophet, name this baby beloved of God, Jedediah, because the Lord loves the baby and he's with the baby and the baby grows up to be a wise king. Bathsheba ends up being an influential person in, in David's life and when Solomon ascends the throne, he has another throne built right at his right hand a throne for his mother, testifying to everyone in the kingdom that this woman is beloved and honored. Bathsheba, the adulteress who disgraced her name, by God's grace found forgiveness and honor. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba were not perfect. They did not have it all together. Their dreams were shattered and life and happiness were not handed to them on a platter. And my guess is life and happiness has not been handed to you either. When we pick up the storylines of these women, we enter in a time of their lives when it could be said of them, what prospect do you have for a good and hopeful life? Maybe there's been times when you've thought that of your own life. Maybe you think that even now. But hopelessness gave way to hope when God entered the story. And so it is with us. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, then God has already entered our story. He enters our hopeless circumstances and he, by his grace, gives us a life we never thought was possible. When we give up on this life, we give up on a God who is constantly turning ashes into things of beauty. So you moms who struggle, 
who wonder, how am I ever going to do it? Who feel overwhelmed, feel like, how am I going to make it through this day? Who have to fend off the self-questioning of the past, who beat yourselves up because you think, I can't measure up. You have hope because you're not alone in the struggle. The Lord is with you, and he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. So today we honor moms. We know your life isn't easy, and um, we know you're not perfect. We know being a mom is hard. But we say thank you for not giving up. Thank you for enduring nine months of pregnancy with us. Thank you for staying up late at night to feed us. Thank you for the countless diaper changes. Thank you for taking us to school and waking us up from school, even when it seemed like you were trying to raise the dead. Thank you for taking us to Little League and dance practice and gymnastics and voice lessons. Thank you for the nights you stayed up with us when we were sick. Even thank you for the nights you stayed up worrying for us. Thank you for the things you taught us. And mom, thank you for praying for us. Who knows if it was your prayers that protected us from some disaster. Who knows if it was your prayers that got us through a difficult time in our lives. Who knows if it was your prayers that God used to bring us to faith in Jesus. Maybe you have a mom or a grandma who wants you to come to church and want you to give your life to Jesus, and you don't like it, and you don't want to be bothered with it. Maybe it's because your imperfect mom has found forgiveness and redemption and restoration and hope and strength and peace in Jesus. And she wants the same thing for you. You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. He starts working right where he finds you. He takes your shortcomings and he redeems it with grace. He redeems even the ugly things in life. He is the redeemer of all things. Just ask Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba.